listening to Adjective New Music's podcast, Lexical Tones. I'm your host, Rob McClure. This is the final podcast for at least a month or so. I've mentioned this before, but I am leaving my position in China and have accepted a new position at Ohio University in Athens. I'm really excited to be moving back to the States and cannot wait to not have to think about the crazy time differences when, when scheduling interviews for this podcast. So during the move and the transition, uh, we're going to take a little bit of a break with Lexical Tones, but we will be back in September or so. This podcast is the second Adjective Composers Collective mixtape, and we will start off with my conversation with Andrea Rinkemeyer and her piece, Wrought Iron. So this was written for... The Albany, New York Symphony. Yes, the Albany, New York Symphony, but the recording we're going to hear is the AB duo, right? Correct. Yeah. 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 So I was reading a little bit about this piece and I saw that it was composed, uh, inspired by a building. Yes. The Troy's Savings Bank Music Hall. And um, so they, every year, the, well, I don't know if it's every year, but the American Music Festival at Albany Symphony, um, I don't know if it's every other year or every year, they try to pick a, a building to feature um, with mm-hmm. our commissions. And so the year that I was there, they were asking composers to write pieces for the Troy Savings Bank Music Hall, which is this acoustically perfect space. I mean, it's really an amazing concert hall. So each of us, we were supposed to look at photographs. Um, you know, they they asked some people to go and... Um, walk around the hall, things like that. Of course, mm-hmm. I was living in Bangkok, so I couldn't just go right. and walk around the hall. Yeah. <laughs> so I had to rely on the internet and pictures that I found. And um, what I was really taken with were the the pieces that go along the top of the, the building. There's these beautiful mm-hmm. um, cast pieces. Um, at the time, I thought they were wrought iron. <laughs> but they were... Um, and inside, there's this very ornate... Um, metalwork all over the place uh-huh. and so I wanted to um, you know think about that and what's really wonderful is um, the wispiness and the kind of um, what's the word uh, just kind of joy that you find in these things that you don't always find in architecture you know this, this. yeah and to take something that's you know iron that you think of as being hard and then to make it whimsical yeah, like, I, I really like that about it. And um, at that point, I didn't really have much many pieces that had whimsy. And so I thought, OK, well, what, you know, what do let me, I what? Let me look at my uh, catalog. <laughs> Who, let's file this under W for whimsy. <laughs> but you know what I mean? Like you, if you do something yeah. so much or you ignore some part of your own personality, um you know, which I think I had done. I had, I had you know, because I like to laugh. I mean, anybody who knows me knows that I love to laugh. And so I, I like to just like see something beautiful and enjoy it, you know. And there's also um, this beautiful sparkly chandelier in there. And um, I wanted to incorporate that's really, this. That's really interesting that, that, you, that you say that. Like, I'm, I'm thinking about myself and how I, and how I've been writing music and like, 
Let's see, Rob, name a happy piece. Right. <laughs> that you We written. don't do that, right? <laughs> no. I mean, like not not that would be very overt. Like there are certainly things in my own catalog that make me happy. Right. But to just like project that that particular emotion is not something that I've really thought about in a while. Yeah, and hmm. I and I've I realized, you know, I don't have a piece that I would say is whimsical and um so and I also knew the audience would be, um, well, they, they were coming for a contemporary music concert, so there's that. But, you know, we knew that there was going to be a piece um, for middle schoolers on the, mm, on the concert. Okay. So there were going to be a lot of people who were maybe used to listening to contemporary music. So I thought, well, maybe I can do something a little for them, but a little for me, too, that's fun. And we were rather limited in the number of instruments that we could choose from. And so... Um, when I was given the list, you know, we were limited, like, which percussion instruments we could use. And, of course, I love percussion, and I wanted to use tons of percussion. But right. um, so then I kind of thought, well, what, what is, how can I use the percussion to kind of be architectural in a way, too? Um, mm-hmm. So shapes that were found around the building and in this wrought iron, I wanted to use those shapes to choose the instruments. So okay. there are circles, so that's like cymbals and bongos and things like that. Um, and then rectangles, you know, the, the bars of the vibraphone, but they also kind of go in a triangle shape. So mm-hmm. those shapes were found within um, the, within not only the wrought iron, but also in the, um, you know. The different like architectural the, yeah, shapes. Yeah, yeah, things that were yeah. there. And then there's another cool aspect of this building that um, in order to meet, meet the budget, he, he kind of encased the whole building in metal and then kind of distressed it in a way to make it look like it was stone. Uh-huh. So I thought that was kind of a cool concept too, to think there's this like artifice, but in the in doing that to make to meet the budget, that's what kind of made the space really special acoustically. Uh-huh. Because there's this like metal case around the whole building. Um and then when you look at the photos around there's there's composers like the, the great composers you know sure and their names are all over the place and so all I, dead white men yes exactly <laughs> but you know uh, there's some good stuff from those old dead white yeah, men it's the, i'm not saying they're bad i'm just saying history uh yeah it kind of left me history out. Anyway. has a slant <laughs> but anyway so i took a few little I didn't really intend to at first, but all of a sudden I found that I had fur lace like buried mm-hmm. in there. And I was like, well, that's kind of unfortunate because I would not okay. normally choose fur lace. Um, but it's just a little like do 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 do. So I was like, well, you know what? I'm going to embrace that because it's part of the building. Uh huh. So it's in there. So and you're, it's even in the you, score. You, you built the artifice. I in, did. Musically. I did. Yeah. And then another thing that I was like, just like, you know, trying to think of cool ideas of what can, what can I do? And um, so I had, when I was in Bangkok, I had a piano and I was practicing all the time. It was lovely. Um, and so I had my my Chopin preludes out one day and I purposely misread them in the wrong clef. Oh, and, okay. And I got this cool churning thing. And, um, and so I turned that into part of the piece too. So I, 
did just took some uh, stuff from like Chopin. treble become bass and bass become treble yeah. or were you going like alto and tenor were you going no, hardcore no, no. it wasn't that much of a, of a deviation <laughs> but um, uh your orals your oral skills training has failed you then yeah I, well, no, I just, it was cool and the best it was just cool switching the, the switching them anyway and it was funny because someone at some point said well it sounds like you're taking from gamelan music and i was like no just chopin in the wrong club you know so, <laughs> that's so cool i love then, that yeah and then to put it in vibraphone flute you know it doesn't sound anything like chopin but yeah because after after reading your uh the the notes you wrote about it i saw beethoven and chopin and i'm like wow <laughs> i'm not really getting this at all <laughs> well it's buried they're little jokes and yeah, it's in yeah. the, it's in the score i above the parts I use this like old timey font that kind of looks like it's in from the building, you know, uh-huh. this kind of art deco, old timey, whatever font. And right above the spots, I put the composers, like kind of like a tombstone right above the, the spot in the music. Okay. I put their name. So anybody who digs deep, if they're, if they're curious, they can, they can find, they can, they find can the references. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> but I wouldn't say anybody would listen to it and say, oh, Beethoven, obviously. This is Yes, yeah, so, I mean surface surface wise <laughs> it reminds me of uh well it doesn't really remind me of anyone in particular. I mean it, it, in a in a way it just sounds like you. So that's great. Yeah, you know? Um, <laughs> but yeah, I, I definitely I one of the reviews on your website mentioned like Ravel and Debussy and I was like, Really? I'm not really getting that either. Like Yeah, no, I was surprised by that. Yeah. No, I like yeah. the one I could see the jazzy. Somebody said it yeah. was jazzy and yeah, there's syncopation. Like I get all that, you know, because it's in ten eight and kind of turns yeah. along, you know, and um but no, it's it's interesting how people describe your music back to you, you know. Sure. Yeah. I recently the... wrote this little piece and someone said, Well, your piece is kinda of atonal and I was like, What? I I mean, <laughs> What? <laughs> I don't write atonal music. What? <laughs> you don't have good vocabulary. <laughs> Your piece just sounds really interesting. Yeah. Yeah. As I was reading about this piece and, and listening to it, it it made me because you you know it was written for a building and it was taking like architectural aspects from the building and, and using them musically. It it made me it it forced me back into music history one Mm. and uh made me remember uh and i have to admit that i had to look all this up like in the (laughs) in the couple minutes before we got on because all i could remember was hey wasn't there that piece that he made some it was like based on a church or something that's all i had no composer no piece no no nothing like nothing remembered about it other than the fact that yeah, someone did this a long time ago. Um, yeah, but and actually, Kristen was... Kuster does this a lot. She's oh, really? Several pieces for architecture. Yeah, it was uh, it was Dufay, <laughs> and it was Nuperizarm Flores. But then I looked at like that's what you're taught, right? You're taught that he took uh, you know proportional aspects from the church and built that into his. Um, into it's a motet so he built it into his tenor right that's mm-hmm. what you're taught then i look then i did a little you know i had to like do some search you know medieval composer church proportion you know something like that and i found out that's all bs oh that's amazing Every, everything we were taught in music history one about this piece has given, been completely debunked really 
That yes. Fascinating. <laughs> so it was wow. something like it, it was one scholar who said this, and obviously it got put into into history books, or or at least the the teachers that were teaching, like they they picked up on this. It was like this proportion of six four three two or something like that, and some guy. Uh, I mean, many scholars after that completely debunked it. And then in 2012, some guy like had who had done multiple degrees in medieval music and architecture wrote this like big thing about it. It was like, yeah, this is complete BS from 100 percent. There is no connection between any of it. That's so funny. So I had I was gonna have this amazing anecdote anecdote like, you know, oh, you're you you know, you're connecting all the way back to this. Nope. No. Nope. Totally You're doing false. the thing he wasn't. Defy did nothing of it. <laughs> but there are people so, like, you know, like um I think it's Akagum. He mm-hmm. he has music inside his coffin. Right. You know, so there have been people who have put who thought about spaces, you know. So it's oh, not yeah, totally, totally it's not, but yes, Defy, that's interesting. Yeah. But so fast. So and I wonder, you know, I, I just wonder if this is still being taught, of course. You know, like, you, you don't exactly get, like, hot off the press. The, this has been debunked, you know? It's like, <laughs> who's going to tell you? So, anyway, I just That's thought hilarious. that was hilarious. Yeah. yeah. So, uh, this we're going to hear AB Duo, and this is off their new album? Yeah, their Fairly first album? full-length album came out in September. Um, it's called Variety Show, and... Um, Go buy it. It's on Arrowcade Records. And you could probably get it on iTunes or... Yeah, or, I think it's you know on what? Bandcamp. Yeah. Go buy the physical CD. Yes. Go find it, you and know? It's very kind of them to let us, you know, use the, use the track. Yeah, very kind. Thank you, AB Duo. Thank you. <laughs> <laughs> so, um, they're on Twitter, right? I yeah. think they're... Are they, yeah. Are yeah, they just yeah. at AB Duo on Twitter? I believe so, yeah. Okay, so I go can... follow them on Twitter. And you are at A... I can't remember. What is A- your handle? A-L-R-E-I-N-K-E. Alranka. There it is. Yeah. Alranka. Uh-huh. That's me. <laughs> All right, so now we're going to listen to Wrought Iron, and it's being performed by AB Duo. Thanks, Andrea. Thanks, Rob. Thank you. 
Next, I caught up with the newly minted Dr. Carter Rice, and we talked about his brand new piece for saxophone and electronics called Flat Circle. Anyway, what's up, man? Not much. Doing doing summer stuff, enjoying being done with school. That's nice, <laughs> as I'm sure you yeah. can still remember from not, not long ago. Um, Doctor. Yes, yes. Now, now when we speak in these conversations, we'll be on an equal level. So be prepared for just <laughs> some banter like you've never had before. That's the plan. You are just going to drop some academia right on me. Oh, yeah, the, the names I'm going to drop, the quotes, you won't even... <laughs> <laughs> stuff that doesn't even make you're, a whole lot of sense. I believe Stephen you're gonna, Colbert said. You're going to cite your sources in mid-conversation now. <laughs> yeah, I am. And I'm I'm going to quote myself as a source quite frequently. <laughs> like, <laughs> in my dissertation, I say. <laughs> and then go from there. <laughs> That's the plan. No, how, yeah, how about man. you? I, I imagine you're getting packed up, right? And, you know, all that. Oh, all that it's, sort of stuff, a, it's a very empty apartment right yeah. now. <laughs> Hence the... Uh, the the echo I, I i've done my best to try and get rid of it i have like sure. the couch pillows trying trying to surround myself to create a little a chamber but it it doesn't it's not really working <laughs> okay so uh let's talk about flat circle to be yeah. honest when you when you sent me the title i was like is this a flat earth reference like oh, that'd be I, great what right? am i getting into <laughs> Yeah. Well, I mean, it's not a reference. It's a fact that the Earth is flat. I mean, right? Because obviously, like that, that doctorate is really paying off, man. Yeah. Well, um, it's a it's a doctorate from Central Indiana where they hold certain beliefs, and so that often finds its way into <laughs> academia. You know, actually, just real quick, funny, and maybe we won't include this, but as someone who you know, I went from my undergrad to my master's and then to my doctorate, right? And like. Mm-hmm. I, I was like Minnesota, you know, fairly blue state, Ohio, swing state, but like Bowling Green, the town is fairly liberal. And, you know, mm-hmm. when you're in academia, it's generally more liberal. And I got to Ball State and most of the professors, you know, lean left a few, maybe a few more that don't than I was used to in other places. But what I was not used to was in like, like, a, like a seminar for students all getting their doctorates. It was like a music psychology class. I was not expecting the notion of evolution being brought up in class to be met like heatedly by multiple of my classmates. That was so bizarre because a lot of people are from like small central Indiana towns around here. And that is like, it was crazy. It blew my, I was like, Oh, we have to debate the merits of evolution before we debate the topic, which led to it. It was, it was crazy. Yikes. Yeah. (laughs) Wow. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, of of course that stuff happens, but you don't expect it to happen in academia. I mean, yeah. especially at that level. Exactly. I mean, yeah. Yeah. So anyway, so, okay. But yes. Anyway, <laughs> back yeah. on track. Not a fl- not a flat earth reference. Not not, not at a all. flat <laughs> but but equally, well, not equally. In inversely sciency? <laughs> Yeah, from flat earth. Yeah, kind of. Um I mean the title, I, do you want to know like where the title originally yeah, because I'm I'm reading your I'm reading your program notes, and I'm I've been getting really into science right now. But this yeah. is, this is something that I always struggle with. This this idea of like space is curved and space mm-hmm. is flat, and it, I just can't wrap my head around it. So okay. maybe l- like let's let's explore this. 
Okay. Well, to, let me tell you one. I I am far from a scientist, right? But um, the inspiration that the sciency inspiration behind this piece came from a couple of sources. One from my time getting to teach acoustics at Ball State uh, for like three years in a row, which is great because it's it was basically an applied physics course, and you get into the the nature of sound a bit more in depth than you often might in like a computer music class. You know what I mean? Where you obviously learn quite a bit about sound, but this this was cool. So that was great. Uh, and then the other that's thing a, is, that's a class that I always wish I would have had the opportunity to take is mm-hmm. is acoustics. Like I've I've bought a couple books on acoustics and I haven't I haven't really cracked them open yet, you know, it's like the the time the, the time to teach yourself something is just like <laughs> Very minimal. <laughs> but well, and especially it's it's not like uh it's not like you're learning, you know, uh like checkers. You know, it's like it's like really it's not easy to like just read a couple pages one week and then revit you know what I mean? Like it's it's kind of yeah. a, a dense topic. It's, it's front loaded with a lot of dense stuff too. So Right. Well, anyway, so reading re, uh, you know, teaching that class was helpful. And then the other the extent of my physics knowledge comes from and I, I don't have the title in front of me, but it was an audible book called like um Physics for Dummies. Quantum Physics basically yeah basically that it was like it was except i think they called it like um physics and the quantum revolution for non-scientists and it's like a series of lectures and that, and that was cool to hear about that so that was that's what sort of has put me in the the realm of having acoustic or physical phenomena inspiring some of my works lately and then the title of this piece did you watch true detective season 1 can't say that i did TV will come back to me in okay, about, you know, up. like a month or so. <laughs> well, I'm a big film and TV buff, and season one of True Detective is one of the most fascinating, uh, or one of the best examples of storytelling just ever. It's incredibly mm. well done, and it's super well acted. And there's this scene where, like, a really drunk Matthew McConaughey starts talking about how, like, if you could remove yourself sort of from the space-time continuum and see all the universe... Uh, as like a in a state of superposition, which I think is really cool because that was which is in which is weird because that's how like the movie Interstellar ends as well is him seeing like time he's seeing matter stretched out over time you know what I mean so like right, my hand the, moving left to right you see you don't see it in left and right you see it everywhere at once you know what I mean right yeah yeah so and, and so what and what's the thing that he ends up in at the end a tesseract like a, a tesseract yeah exactly yeah, yeah he's floating around yeah. and. And matter and, is now and time, stretched. And time is time is in space. As exactly, yeah, exactly, yeah. Not being, not ever being able to harness time like you can move through it free, freely, like you do mm-hmm. space. Exactly, yeah. It's yeah, just like moving through time, back, forwards, whatever it is, moving around. And so the, the concept of sort of seeing the universe that way, um, and in and in that show, he happens to refer to it as a flat circle. Um, was the, the concept for that piece and hence where the title came from. And I think you've, you've mentioned before, my program notes are usually pretty thin. This piece is actually, there's more to it than some of my pieces. So Exactly. <laughs> I was really excited to actually find a paragraph on yeah. this. So. <laughs> for once, yeah. <laughs> so in this, you know, you're saying that the, the circle is kind of the, uh, the, the thing that gets translated into your musical ideas. So how did, how does the circle make its way musically? Sure. Yeah. So a number of ways. Um, and it's worth mentioning. There's a couple other pieces I have that have circle in the title. Like my dissertation was called color circle, um, which was for orchestra Mm -hmm. and computer. And so I'm trying to sort of exploit the geometry or the properties of circles in a few different pieces in a few different ways. 
And in in uh, Flat Circle, the saxophone piece, it's more um, it's more about sort of the projection of the circle um, as a sine tone, like via the unit circle, you know, over time. Because mm-hmm. if you go mm-hmm. around a circle in time, you know, you get a sinusoidal curve. And so most of the pitch language in that piece sort of begins, uh, if you look at it, you know, sort of begins at a center pitch and then moves up and down and up and down in greater sort of... Um, amplitude and greater frequency um, of that sort of sinusoidal motion and then later um, you know if you do additive synthesis with other sine tones you obviously get the other sort of common waveforms sort of culminating to like a weird sawtooth like figure so there Mm -hmm. there became an actual spatial mapping of just wave shapes um, in pitch structure uh, as well as some underlying uh, like circle of fifths to choose sort of prominent pitches that are being used throughout major sections of the piece that are sort of our anchor pitches it's it's kind of hard to find at this point and i bet if i went back i'd have a hard time finding that circle of fifths but i know (laughs) i know it's there it's it's there damn it it's in my notebook so um and then uh yeah the other thing was uh, uh yeah in a lot of the electronic uh, portion of the piece, a lot of the processing or the sound files or the drones that are sort of generated in real time are all on sort of sinusoidal-like patterns that influence uh, whether it's like a modulation rate or a, a an amplitude fluctuation or a frequency change, that sort of thing. So a lot of just the actual physical shape of a circle itself. And that that kind of sinusoidal shape, I think it kind of made its way into your score as well, like a, as a notational mm-hmm. idea. So that is that kind of another way you are controlling time yeah you know yeah because you're like you give these things and you you say uh you know at the top of the graph fast and loud and at the bottom of the graph slow and quiet so in a way that does that affects our the listener's perception of time mm-hmm. yeah um when well, I, I think trying to have some sort of cohesion with the um with the notation uh, to the sort of underlying concepts of the piece was important because certainly a performer, uh, you know, it, you could have notated some of the things I put in the score much more traditionally if you wanted to, you know, um, and uh, the the last sort of section of the piece might be a little trickier, but um, I think sort of including that visual representation um, of that sinusoidal curve influences the way they approach that, influences the way they perform it, and I think it, it has a somewhat less um, restrictive, at least to me, you know, if I was the one performing this, a somewhat less restrictive version of how to sort of approach that because just following this shape, this visual shape that you're familiar with, I I think really pushes you in different directions on how fast is fast and how slow is slow. And is one peak the same as the other? And do I go down sort of the slope of this sine tone and back up as quickly as I did before? Do I have some degree of freedom? So I just give, you know, very broad sections of time to uh, allow a lot more freedom in that. And I think that that sort of graphic representation of things can be cool and a little more, uninhibitive for people yeah uh the notation definitely reminds me of someone who who actually i'm I'm trying to think (laughs) it looks like a lady's score oh okay i was thinking you were gonna maybe say that it it does to some extent which is funny because i didn't hers was one of the few sax pieces i didn't look at for it uh (laughs) oh i'm just i'm just like talking in 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 general sure yeah her 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 method of of putting electronics on or, or visually representing electronics sure. on the, on the score looks, <laughs> I, I really like what you did with, um, 
uh, how you took, you know, the regular notation and then kind of blurred it out. And, oh, sure. Yeah. <laughs> you know, I, I think, what is that? Like reverb or something? Or, or like harmonization sometimes, like to show yeah, that you're getting yeah. the same pitch, but not quite the same. Yeah. 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 That's, that's pretty, that's <laughs> oh, pretty cool. cool. One of these days we're going to have a, a podcast chat where Elaney doesn't come up and it's going to be a really big deal, but it's, <laughs> it's yet to happen. So. <laughs> um, so this piece was written for our friend Noah Evan. It was written for Noah, yeah, which was great. And she's so wonderful, and she played it really well. We got to play it at Seamus just a couple months ago, and that was awesome. And um, I don't know, we, we had a lot of fun with it. It was, it was great working with her. We had talked for like three and a half years about working on a piece together. And then it was sort of like <laughs> on like some random Tuesday, I was like, it is time. And I, and I emailed her and, and, I, and I'm, and I'm all but certain. It is time. I, I could look it up. I'm almost certain the title of the email was it is time. <laughs> I was like, it's like, this is happening. We're finally going to work on something. Let's do this. And then we did. It was great. Awesome, man. Well, uh, and she's on the recording that we're going to hear. I would assume. Well, actually, yeah, we should. I should make a note about that. So this is this is by no means like an official Noah Evan recording. Uh, we are doing a more official one soon. This is a weird, but I'm happy with the result of this recording. But this is about half of Noah playing when we were doing sort of tests of like what I was going to, you know, testing things out and what do I want to mm -hmm. process and hear this, that, the other. And then I'm really happy because you didn't even say anything about this. About half of it is a sample from Native Instruments that I played what? really, really well. I know, right? You would never know. And there's times where it's like she was playing a note on recording and I actually cross-dissolved with a sampled note, like manually tuned and you can't even, it's uh -huh. really cool. So now listen again and I dare you to find when it switches. But Oh um, my God. But yeah, we, we, um, we, we got on the Seamus CD with this peach, which is really exciting. So we're going to do oh, a... Oh, um, congratulations, man. Thank you. That's awesome. We're going to do a studio recording here soon. But the one that I have together, the sort of mock-up, I think is a, a, a very reasonable uh, facsimile of, of the piece. So I was pretty happy with it. So yes, awesome. you are you are hearing Noah, but we're not going to give this like a, a full Noah credit for everything. <laughs> that Clearly there the last will be couple minutes are. <laughs> yes, yeah, there yeah. will be. Yeah, there's no native instruments sample for just wail up and down the harmonic series <laughs> with wild abandon i wish there was but i my very first electronics uh like instrument electronics piece was a tenor sax and mm -hmm. an electron and i mean it's it will never see the light of day again it is mm -hmm. horrible <laughs> but at the end um at the end i i kind of did i just told it was a uh, uh this guy dan puccio playing and uh He's he's just a monster monster player, and I just told him like, at the end, just kind of like, just go nuts, yeah. you know, <laughs> just like, I I know I wrote this in another score. I don't think I wrote it in the first score, but I definitely could have. Um, there's there's a point where in the score of another piece, I just put loud noises. Yeah. <laughs> I know. That, that's yeah, and that's sort of what the last two minutes of mine were supposed to be. And when we did the performance at Seamus, we realized it was like. I was like, God, I wish like I could get the electronic part louder, but I physically can't get louder with these speakers than Noah can play <laughs> with this right, sort yeah. of technique. It was so cool. So, um, and yeah, she's got some serious pipes and some serious breathing ability. So she was able to get a tremendous amount of sound. It was really cool. It was rad. So awesome. So we're kind of going to hear Noah Evan. Yes. Yeah. And <laughs> in the future you will most definitely hear Noah Evan coming yes. out on Seamus and that'll be out sometime this year. Well, I think they're about to release last year's CD 
So it'll you know, come like out month. next year. Yeah. Some sometime with a two and a zero as the year, hopefully. But um, <laughs> we'll be they're a little behind from what I hear. But yes, it, it will eventually come out, which is exciting. So awesome. So this is flat circle.
John Sokol and I talked about his new piece for orchestra called Everything All at Once. So good to good to talk to you again since the last yeah. time when we when we did an over drinks. Hopefully hopefully very soon we can do one of those in person. That would be so great. How far away is Baldwin? Where is Baldwin Wallace? I should know this, but I don't. It's in a suburb of Cleveland called Berea. So from okay. downtown Cleveland, it's maybe 15 to 20 minutes, depending on traffic. All right. Well, that's not, that's not I mean, it's Ohio. Nothing is too far away in Ohio. <laughs> um, right. <laughs> so we're going to talk about your piece today, which is called Everything All at Once. Yes. Was this another collaboration with the Boulder Symphony Orchestra? It was, and it was my third such collaboration with them. So we and originally we originally talked about that on on your podcast, but that was like number two podcast, and this is number <laughs> forty nine. So holy moly. <laughs> it was a bit ago. So can you remind us about your your kind of relationship with Boulder? Yeah, I uh, I had lived there for about a month and a half in the summer of. 2012 yeah so five years ago and um i had friends who played with the orchestra and we were trying to work up some kind of um collaboration uh which ended up panning out for a premiere in march of 2014 um but beyond that uh after that piece which uh was called gravitational assist when that was finished the conductor Devin Patrick Hughes approached me, said he really enjoyed the piece, uh, the orchestra liked playing it, and uh, the audience got a good response, would I write another piece for them? And so we've been collaborating on and off since. Uh, this past season was the only one I haven't written for yet, but um, I've just spoken with Devin and we're slated to have something uh, on the first concert of the next season, which is this coming September. Wow, so you gotta you gotta turn something book out. It. Yeah, he said a short five minute piece, so I think that'll be doable. Yeah, yeah. Wow, that that's that's so incredible to have a relationship with uh, with an orchestra like that. I mean, I feel that... really lucky, and it's uh, as composers, I think we get an idea of what composer in residence might mean. But um, you know, Boulder Symphony is a, a community orchestra, and um, but, but, but Devin's programming is really wise, and he has a, a propensity toward new music, and at least each concert, I think, has one new piece on it, or, or at least several throughout the entire programming season. Um, and you know, again, I feel fortunate to at least have been on one each season. Mm -hmm. So you, you said it's a community orchestra. How does that kind of, how does that change your approach to the orchestra or in, in your compositional uh, kind of process? I'm not sure it does. Um, I think it allows me to be a little more liberal in what I write. Um, I, I, I know them more now than I did when I first wrote for them, but I, I, I feel I have a good idea of what would be challenging versus what is safe and finding that kind of balance between that for all of the players. Um, Plus, it's just it's it's great to be able to write for orchestra, you know, and, and I get to kind of refocus my intentions with each new piece. Um, so, 
you know, given the parameters of what I'm supposed to write in uh, for uh, September, a five-minute piece, uh, I'm already thinking something pretty upbeat if it's going to be the season opener. Um, and I'm also given the information of what's going to be on that program, so I know exactly what they're going to be challenged with, but that gives me an idea of what they're going to be spending their rehearsal time on. Um, it's all these factors that go into what's going to be the most efficient yet effective piece that I can provide for that time. So with a title like Everything All at Once, your opening does not disappoint. I have to say that. <laughs> <laughs> so can you like explain the general concept of the piece? But I think I get it. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I think um, you yourself being a composer and parent of two understand it pretty heavily. <laughs> um, yeah. <laughs> the gist of this in particular was that um, in the span of about 18 months, I had undergone, well, that sounds negative. <laughs> um, I had experienced um, uh -huh. a marriage, a right. home purchase, and the birth of my son. And the piece was essentially the first time, I think, since the wedding that I had some time to kind of reflect on what is going on here. Um, mm -hmm. So it's been a lot and it's been an, it, it's, it's a lot about transition and adjustment and recognizing um, just the big shifts that have happened, that need to happen, and how this new life um, is drastically different than what I had been kind of lazily palling about with up until uh, <laughs> everything changed. So um, it, the big forceful opening is more, to my mind, a landmark of here comes a transition, whether you're ready for it or not. Uh, and then when you get right. to a mode of comfortability or, uh, you know, like, yeah, I think I'm finally getting this. Nope. Still more work to be done. <laughs> Yeah. Well, well, I mean, we know all about that in this house, you know, <laughs> like that's that's pretty much just been our kind of M.O. from I'm, I'm talking about Kate, my wife and I from the beginning, like we graduated undergrad, we got married and we moved 2000 miles across the country in the span of like two months yeah, or something like that. Incredible. And then and then. Uh, we moved to China, immediately got pregnant, and you know, it's like, <laughs> we, we don't do anything like spaced out. It all has to be now, 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 right away. Right, right. Yeah, and uh, my wife Michelle is very much a, um, we call it the fast path, um, and, and I'm very much on the slow path, so, you know, I, I have this sense of playing catch up, and she has this sense of... <laughs> stop dragging me and uh, right <laughs> yeah so there's some of that kind of push-pull thing with the tempi in the piece and you know I try to relate um, those real-life experiences in, in the music I thought that I mean it's the first kind of I wouldn't call it slower because you know I, I guess maybe the tempo slows down a bit but it's the first time when we stop having the uh like incessant 16th notes yeah and we just get the big hit and then you have this like b f sharp e gesture 
Um, or it might be different notes. Maybe I was looking at the bass clarinet or something. But anyway, you have this, you have this like widely spaced uh, three-note melodic gesture. Mm-hmm. And you did something in there that reminded me of uh, something that Kaya Sariajo said in a master class I was in in Houston. And I don't even know if she really said it or I just like interpreted what she was saying and then like wrote this down in my notebook, but I'm attributing it to her. Basically, the gist is that a solo is never just one person playing in her music. It's an idea that several people or many people can like contribute to and those timbral alterations they keep the sound alive. Mm-hmm. And I think and I think that's what you do in that in that section, you know, it's never it's the basically the same gesture, but it's never the same sound. Uh huh. So is that something you you think about in in terms of orchestration, or I mean, in a, in a big orchestra piece, or even in chamber music? Yeah, absolutely, it is. And uh, yeah, I consider myself a melodic or motivic composer, uh, and and I'll speak to that a little more regarding this piece specifically in just a minute, but uh, in that section when we finally have those breaths and you have all the um, kind of catching up and moment of silence of, uh, to take it all in, um, I, th- I think I agree with your statement completely, uh, or, or Sariajo's statement, in that this idea is being passed around. I mean, the, the first violin becomes a soloist and has it in harmonics, and then there's, a, I think, a solo second violin with a viola where they kind of augmented or or it becomes more angular with the words messy Mm -hmm. next to it like yeah i saw that i yeah and when you had i think the very first time you had it it was like the second violins as a section with the bass clarinet like high up in its register Uh and i i think the second violins are maybe have a gliss while Mm -hmm. the bass clarinet is just playing it straight so you get this kind of like like you say a messy feeling about it yeah and that that was something that I was kind of after when I was uh, writing my my orchestra. Well, the one orchestra piece I have, you have you have many, but um, but that but that idea of kind of messiness and um, heterophony, mm-hmm. you know, mm-hmm. and that and that that seems to be something that you're after too. Yeah, it is, and especially this case, I just as the action of the music dies down. You know, I, I want the kind of psychology of the motive to follow suit and just become very ambiguous and uncertain. Um, all the while, it's starting to ramp back up. There's this underlying tension, right? And you feel the bass mm-hmm. drum come up, which is very clearly to anyone listening that it's a heartbeat. Um, but then it's in direct opposition to what the orchestral forces are doing. So there's this kind of, again, that push-pull, right? You know, are we on the same page? Mm-hmm. Are we on, uh, in step? Um, and all the while, this motive is being distorted through it all. Right. You kind of run the gamut in terms of harmonic flavors in this piece. So can you can you talk about your approach to harmony? Yeah. Um, for the past number of years, I've just been so over the moon with the Deer um, Overtone series scale and uh, you know, sharp fours and flat sevens for all. Uh, but yeah, man, it's a good one. <laughs> it's good. Um, and as much as I feel an affinity toward microtonal tuning, I, you know, when you come to a 60-piece orchestra, 
I think that's asking a little bit too much. Um, yeah. So yeah. <laughs> I don't mind, you know, the 12 tone equal temper adjustment of that, uh, but it wasn't going to be enough for this. I wanted that first chord to be a real bang. And so I listed on my, my sketch pad, you know, if I start with just say C, the, the overtone scale on C, um, what other scale can I combine it with where they have the least number of common tones? And it turned out to be, I think, D flat out of everything. So um, mm -hmm. I just combined, in my mind, a kind of harmonic series voicing of that scale um, with the cellos being very open space and then stacking above that with the other winds brass. Um, and then with the other notes kind of organizing it in a way where it felt heavy, but all the mm -hmm. gaps were filled. Um, and there was some doubling at the top of that structure, but to me that was the, the pillar, right? Like it's gotta be this recurring um, landmark that whenever it's heard uh, signifies not only structural means in the music, but also this kind of psychological mean in the listener. Um, so that sonority in particular was a combination of, of two overtone scale uh, sonorities, even though if one were to look at it, you would just say, well, I mean, it's all 12 notes, but you know, to my mind, the way I orchestrated it or voiced it was very much along um, loosely spectral uh, properties. Right, 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 okay. Um, and then, I mean, you have, you have <laughs> that kind of big, crunchy thing at the beginning. And then, you know, towards the end, we get these very open, very, you know, like, uh, yeah, I think open is the, is the right word for, for these kind of sounds. So you, you kind of have a a wide palette to choose from mm -hmm. do you ever have like uh do you ever restrict yourself and say no 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 i'm not i'm not gonna write a major triad or i'm not gonna write a zero one four six or, or something <laughs> like that you, you know what i mean like yeah. are there are there kind of like taboo harmonies for you <laughs> no there aren't um and i think the very fact that a major triad or a seventh chord sonority appears uh, in nature through the harmonic series is more of an excuse to use it for me. Um, mm -hmm. I think th I like the opposition though of uh, having this seemingly dissonant, uh, maybe atonal or definitely unstable sonority with something more grounded. Um, and that comes in the form of that motivic figure that we were talking about a few minutes ago, uh, mm -hmm. which I feel is very important to say, uh, I derived by using the letters of my wife's name, Michelle. So, uh, oh, yeah, all right. I'm getting uh, <laughs> Renaissance techniques in here too, I guess. But, uh, <laughs> you know, um, <laughs> so so on top of you know outlining this melody, which um, I use M I for me, so that's E. Uh, C is C, H is B natural, um, E again, and then the two L's for law, so two A's, the octave jump, and then a final E. Uh, being twisted and augmented and you know stretched out in its many different ways throughout the piece. Um, and then finding other kind of sonorities. Right before that big break we talked about, um, those three notes fit well in overtone chords um, of, of D and F equally well. <laughs> Excuse mm -hmm. me. So you know, I, I feel versatile enough to apply things into tonal contexts as well as atonal contexts. And I think that gives the music a nice contrast and opposition that you can really uh, form a narrative, which is ultimately the most important thing to me. I should also say, um, I think I did at one time 
restrict myself from certain things, but maybe from a more subconscious level. As I was finishing up my doctoral studies at Indiana, I was very textural based in my mm -hmm. approach. And uh, when I moved back to Cleveland, I had this kind of moment or, or months of moments where I, I was asking <laughs> myself, what, what am I really trying to do or communicate or say? You know, are my intentions clear to the listener? Are they clear to me? Is this enough? And I didn't want to hide behind you know, any kind of superficial or academic veil of, well, here's some really neat sounds and here's some textures, but what is this, what is this saying? What's the communication? And, and that's kind of been at the top of my list behind any piece I've, I've written since about 2000. 13 or so it's like where is this moving what it, it can still have a dialogue i can still communicate you know emotive content um but still be a good crafts person about it you know i can still be technically mm -hmm. accurate um, and understand all the musical components but why did i get to uh composing in the first place and have i lost sight of that and just a lot of those kind of internal existential questions that uh, I've been answering with each piece uh, since that time. Cool. So we're going to listen to everything all at once. And this is the Boulder Symphony Orchestra. <laughs> Thank <laughs> you. 
Finally, I caught up with Rob Deemer and I discussed his Reed Quintet, Gallimofri. So we're going to talk about your piece, and I hope I'm pronouncing this right, Gallimofri? I would think it's Gallimofri. Uh, I'm not an expert myself, but that's how I've been pronouncing it. 
Okay, I looked at uh, I I looked up the definition, and they did have a pronunciation guide, but who oh. the hell knows, you know? It, it so so did it say mo mo free? The emphasis was on the second syllable or, or the third syllable. Gallimofri, um, so right. Gallimofri. Huh. Yeah, I, when I looked at the word, I was like, Gallimofri. <laughs> what is this? Like, I love it. But you gave me a chance to learn a new word, so so thanks. Um, tell me about this. I mean, I I looked at the definition, and I'm wondering how it relates to your piece. Sure. I mean. Yeah, go ahead. Well, thinking back, I'm trying to trying to uh, <laughs> knock the cobwebs out of my memory a little bit because because this right. has been a couple of years since I I wrote it. Um, but basically, uh, to be honest, some I know a lot of composers like to write their piece and then they will figure out what the title is. Mm-hmm. I tend to come from the other direction. Oftentimes, I will write. I will f- I will come up with a title and that will help me to figure out what direction I want the piece to go in. Right. And yeah. so I've I I have a running collection of uh either words or 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 small, you know, small phrases or or things that I could use as a title. And uh, to be honest, I don't remember when I initially discovered that word, uh, mm-hmm. but I saw it and I found out what the definition was, and I'm like, "Oh, dude, that that has to be that has to be a piece." I don't know what piece it's going to be, but that has to be a piece. Um, and then when the Acropolis came calling and asked me to write a piece, I had initially thought that it was going to be a little bit more humorous. Mm -hmm. Uh, just kind of off, you know, how sometimes when you start a piece and you're like, I'm going to go down this direction. And then a little bit after a while, I was like, actually looking at everything else that I'd been writing as of late and, and what I wanted to be able to do with the instrumentation of the Reed Quintet. Basically, I just decided, well, let's see if we can make it so it's not humorous in a haha way but at the but still taking this this concept of galamofri of of kind of a um a hodgepodge or or uh-huh. a, a a conglomeration of various ideas and see what i can come up with and i've i've actually used the concept i've actually described the concept of composing sometimes as kind of making chili uh, you don't quite know. Yeah. You don't quite mm-hmm. know all of the ingredients because you can obviously you can make chili in a lot of different ways, and as long as you kind of have the basic ingredients, you can kind of add things as you as you need. But you still have to allow for it to set up and and congeal and and turn into something that's glorious on its own rather than a sum of its parts. So that's that's more or less how how uh, the starting place came to be with this piece and then i just you know sometimes i i i uh think narratively sometimes i think uh conceptually this one was kind of like hmm let's start here let's see where this goes and then just kind of off and running and and exploring stuff it was it was a little bit more of a i i wouldn't say uh kind of a complete um 
intuitive piece, but it it was much more of an intuitive piece than maybe some of my other stuff. Just I think about every guy you ever talk to has a chili recipe, you know, some <laughs> like their chili, right? So I'm just curious, what what about your chili makes it special? Uh, like the food chili? Yeah, yeah, totally. <laughs> <laughs> well, you have to remember that I'm married to a Texan. Uh, Lori's Lori's from Austin, so. Um, it's kind of a combination of a chili recipe that that I that I have from my mom, uh, mm-hmm. which which had you know it's got the hamburger and 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 uses red beans, uh, as mm, well as yeah. as uh, um, uh, celery, chopped up celery. Whoa! Um, yeah, okay. that's that's that tends to be one of the things where people are like, "What that? What the hell? Uh, what was that?" Um, and then when I introduced my wife to that, then then she also made some other suggestions in terms of of stuff that came from from Texas. So it's a it's a bit of a it's again it's a bit of a a, a melding from from my own family's history uh, to 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 my wife. So there's mm-hmm. there's a little bit more of a of a Tex Mex feel to it. Uh, in, you know, probably some Rotel uh and and different kinds of beans maybe less um of red beans and maybe more of of like some spicier uh beans or beans that have 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 spices added to it so mm-hmm. it's probably mm-hmm. it's probably a lot hotter than than the chili that i grew up with but it's it's still damn good yeah yeah in Arizona for my masters uh the percussion teacher out there norm norm weinberg uh, when I was doing my master's, I was still very much involved with the percussion ensemble and, uh, the percussion studio and every like beginning of the year, he would have everyone out to his place for what oh, yeah. he called his, his damn, is it, I think it's damn fine chili. Yeah. <laughs> Norm Weinberg's damn fine chili. Nice. But also like, uh, I've been listening to this podcast called the boogie monster, huh. uh, with, with Kyle Kinane and Dave Stone. And it's like, it's two comedians basically talking about supernatural stuff and and like conspiracy theories and I mean it's not serious whatsoever you know right, it's really right. just funny but D- Dave Stone is a comedian from Georgia and he like every week most of it most of the time it's just it's just them talking about food like what they ate this week and what and what uh <laughs> Dave was making or whatever but he gave uh, he, he gives out recipes all the time and it's it, always nothing, nothing special, but his for his one for chili suggested that instead of just putting the beans like directly into the chili mm-hmm. that you like puree them Ooh. and then put them into the chili. Yeah. Mm. I was mm. like, Hmm, I might want to try that. And <laughs> it, 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 like it, it, it makes it, you know, obviously it's not so much of a, like, tomato based thing with right. then pieces of bean and meat and vegetable in it <laughs> but more of like a i i don't know i i, I wouldn't yeah. even know what to think of it but it seems like it could be a good idea yeah yeah or so or you could even you could do that and then maybe add a few more beans to yeah. it after that to be able to still like have a the bean texture base of and the beans. then right 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 so for back to your piece um (laughs) (laughs) sorry that was that was just fun for me it's all Um, good 
So in this piece where all of the, you said that you kind of just started with one idea and then you just went. So all of the, all of the music was newly composed for this. Correct. Correct. Yeah. Cause I, cause one could think about doing a piece like this, you know, the, the uh, definition of your title from the dictionary is a confused jumble or medley of things. I like that confused jumble. Oh yeah. Oh yeah. <laughs> but one could think about doing a piece like this with like bits of material that kind of never made it into other pieces, kind of like a B-sides and rarities. Oh, absolutely. Album, you know. Yeah. You know. No, and have you and ever you done can... that or thought about doing that? Oh, all the time. Uh yeah. I I talk to to I tell my students all the time to to keep um I call it a boneyard. You know, you mm, have yeah. you have pieces that, you know, they may have been performed uh, maybe once uh, or twice years ago and then never really went anywhere or or mm-hmm. or pieces that didn't even get finished. But you don't throw them away. You just kind of put them to the side. And then if you're looking for ideas, you go to the boneyard, you see what you can kind of, you know, re- not recycle because I don't I don't like that particular term, but the idea of kind of finding bits of ideas and then see where you can go with it. Yeah. Uh, yeah. You know, recycling is more of like taking a, a fully formed thing and then turning it into something else here. It's more of like, no, just prune off, you know, maybe a, just a, a chunk of it and then see what can grow out, f- you know, have, have a newly formed piece coming out of that, that, uh, that prune chunk. And often I think that'll, you know, uh, for those pieces that you wrote a while ago, mm-hmm. you know, you composer, we probably just weren't developed enough or we weren't in the right place to right. take that material where it could have gone. So that, that'd be an interesting exercise. Absolutely. Um, I dig the ensemble. Um, I think it's so much more. So it's the Acropolis Reed Quint. It's clarinet, bass clarinet, bassoon, is it always alto sax or does he switch? He likes to keep it to alto if at all possible. He does okay. do he does do um sopranos sometimes. And I'm pretty sure mm-hmm. there's at least one or two pieces on the album uh, that that have soprano. But but for the most part, yeah, no, he he specifically said I I remember having this conversation with them. I skyped with the entire group uh, when we first started talking about where the piece was going to go, and I remember the two two of the instructions were that the saxophonist would would very much like to stay on alto, and the oboist would very much like to stay on oboe. He has as opposed to, as yeah, opposed to right. English horn, right? He, I think, again, he may he may play English horn on one piece, but those were kind of the things where they're like, you know, if we can keep it to the the core instrumentation, great. Uh, and if if uh, if not, then we can we can discuss it. And I I to be honest, I kind of like those those limitations. I wanted to see mm-hmm. it made sense because you had two instruments down in the basement with the bass clarinet and the bassoon and then you had the clarinet and the oboe uh up in the you know kind of the third story so to, or the second story so to speak the alto really allowed you to be able to kind of uh 
it's the stairs. Yeah, absolutely. It, it, it's it's basically your first floor along with the clarinet. So you really have. It's nice because you you have the ability to double or triple almost anywhere along the entire range of the ensemble. And that was really important to me for this particular piece, because I love the idea of uh, melding, you know, kind of going back to that chili concept, uh, melding the sounds together rather than having, um, you know, five different things going on all at the same time. I like, I like the, the, at least the ability to be able to create new sounds by adding two or three or four instruments together to create a new timbre. Right. And that's why I think this, this ensemble is so much more agile and capable than your traditional wind quintet, because the traditional wind quintet, it really like, it just sounds like five people. Yep five completely different instruments playing together at the same time and it's really it's it's i mean i've you know one of my one of my good friends and colleagues here at at Sujo university um is the bassoonist um uh aaron pergram mm-hmm. and we've talked at length about the problems of the wind quintet i mean he's of course he's a very uh staunch supporter of like the good pieces for right. a wind quintet, but <laughs> he admits like, exactly. Yes, exactly. <laughs> it is such a, a, a hard ensemble to write convincingly for. Oh yeah. So, I mean, that's, that's why I thought this read quintet, like that's cool. It's amazing. I, mean, I, I hope that that's like maybe a thing that kind of catches on because it, it's, I mean, it's such a, it's such a cooler a cooler sound to me. Well, it, it's interesting because I'm, I'm doing a little bit of, of research as we're talking here. It was originally uh, formed in Holland or the Netherlands mm. uh, by a group called Califax. And I think they've been, I feel like ar- I've heard that. Yeah, they've been, yeah. Ar- they've been around for quite a while. Um, and I think it was kind of a one-off, you know, they, they were just kind of like doing their thing for a while. And then other Reed quintets started to form a little bit here and there. And I think Acropolis, especially uh, being being uh, the gold medal winners um, of of the Fischoff competition, the wind, the wind mm. competition several years ago, really helped to to put that on the map. And they've really kind of encouraged Reed quintets to pop up at other institutions. I know there are several others out there. Uh, and and more and more composers are writing for it. I've written for Woodwind Quintet before uh, a number of times, and it's nice. There's some interesting things you can do with it, but mm-hmm. it's yeah, no, that's it's it. Especially for the type of music that I enjoy writing, I much prefer to to be able to blend and the woodwind quintet as it as it currently stands just is not a blending ensemble it doesn't really work that yeah. way doesn't uh so acropolis just kind of reached out to you and said hey write us a piece well you know with with as with many of my my pieces over the last you know, five to seven years uh, it really came from my work at Interlochen up at the Interlochen oh, okay. Summer Arts Camp. Uh, Ryan Reynolds 
was uh, is a bassoonist up there. Uh, and he and Tim Glocklin, I think those were the two that that were a part of, and I apologize if I'm forgetting any anyone else. Maybe the clarinetist, maybe not. I forget. But there was a there was kind of they had this alumni woodwind quintet uh, that they had put together, and I wrote a I I had a piece actually for sextet woodwind sextet that had both soprano saxophone and and uh, in it. So it was basically the woodwind quintet plus soprano saxophone. Mm-hmm. And they played that on a concert. And I just kept in touch with Ryan and and said, hey, you know, if I'd, I'd love to work with you guys and, and whenever that might happen, just let me know. You know, fast forward, God, probably at least three to four years, I, I think. And then Ryan sat down with me and, and said they've been talking and and uh, they were they were working on their third album. Um, which is which is where Gallen Malfrey was is has been recorded, and they wanted to commission me to write one of the pieces, and I jumped at the chance, and that was that was a lot of fun. So that album is called "The Space Between Us," yes. and that's what we're going to listen to right now. So this is Acropolis Reed Quintet playing Gallen Malfrey.
Thanks for listening. As always, if you want to find out more about adjective new music or lexical tones, please go to our website, www.adjectivenewmusic.com.